0: It doesn't really seem to matter what you're talking about, uh, but there seems to be very little we can agree on, all right? Except for maybe LeBron's better than, uh, MJ's better than LeBron. You guys, there was some consensus in this room on that. Um, But here's the deal, people have strong opinions about this stuff, Uh, not something you see a lot of agreement on. Now here's the deal, if you were to ask most, I said most, not all, most theologians, hey, what is the greatest book in the Bible there would actually be a a general level of consensus. Uh, The answer you would get from most would be the book of Romans. And if you were to push on that group a little further and say, all right, hey, what's the greatest chapter in the book of Romans, Uh, they would say Romans eight. And then if you were to push even further and say, hey, what's the greatest verse in Romans eight, they would say verse 28. Um, Here's some information, here's some quotes from different theologians throughout the years uh, says, Romans has been called the greatest theolo- theological document ever written. Right, here's from Martin Luther. Romans is, not, is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Uh, J. Vernon McGee says, Romans contains the great gospel manifesto for the world. Let me urge you to do something that will pay you amazing dividends. Read the book of Romans and read it regularly. This epistle requires all the mental makeup you have, and in addition, it must be bathed in prayer and supplication so that the Holy Spirit can teach us. Yet every Christian should make an effort to know Romans, for this book will ground the believer in their faith. Again, Romans is viewed by many theologians to be the greatest book in the Bible if they had to pick one. It's the GOAT, and we're going to be in this series for four weeks. Uh, the next three weeks, we're going to specifically look at Romans chapter 8, and what I want to do today is do my best to set the stage for those three weeks in Romans 8, because if we were just to hop right into the middle of a book, any book, without reading uh, the beginning, you might be able to figure out some of what's going on, but you're going to miss out on so Much because you're not getting the full context. And here's what I want us to do. We're going to go through uh, at at like 30,000 feet, uh, chapters one through seven, but I want to challenge you guys a little bit. Uh, This week, every day this week, uh, can you guys read Romans 8 uh, to get ready for next week and the week after that and the week after that? Can you read 39 verses? That's 39 verses. If you listen to it on the Bible app, it takes about six minutes. All right. Can I challenge you? every day to read or, or listen to Romans 8 every single day this week? What if instead of mindlessly scrolling through your phone, you spent a handful of minutes in God's word? I really want uh, us to soak up all the power and the goodness that is in this passage. It's, it's the goat chapter, all right? The greatest of all time. And I know that there are people in here today, and you need to cling to some of the truths that are in Romans 8. Romans 8. So uh, would you commit to read those 39 verses each and every day this week? If you commit to do that, would you put your hands like this, uh, your palms up, uh, close your eyes. It's just a, a posture of surrender. All right, let's get our hearts ready for God's word. Take a deep breath, everybody. And remember that God is just as near as the air that we're breathing God, today, would you guide us uh, closer to you? Put our minds away from uh, the frustrations of this past week. Help us to put away the distractions of the coming week. We want to fully focus on you. Uh, We come empty with nothing to offer but surrender. Fill us up as only you can. Holy Spirit, move in here today with power. We believe that in advance. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. So hey, let's talk about the book of Romans. Let's talk about the book of Romans. Um, before I go any further, here's the deal. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, and there's going to be a lot of scripture. There was so much scripture that I was like, I feel like I'm doing a disservice to the kid running the computer that here's no way he can keep up with the amount of verses we're going to. But if you go to the Bible app, click events, go to refuge, we got everything laid out there for you in order. and uh, So it's right there, because it's, it's going to be a lot today. It's a high... High caloric uh, intake day for the word of the Lord, all right? There's going to be a lot there, uh, but let's, let's jump in. Uh, the book of Romans was authored by Paul. Uh, I think the best place to start is uh, why. Why is Romans such a theologically rich book? Uh, Paul wrote the book of, Ro- book of Romans to Christians in Rome. Romans 1 uh, verses 1 and 2 says this. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Here's Paul. He says, this is who I'm addressing. I am writing to all of you who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be his own holy people. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. He says there that he is writing to the believers in Rome. That's why it's called the book of Romans. Uh, and he's writing to the, the believers in Rome, but this is a place he has yet to be. Like, he has never traveled there. That kind of makes Roman one of the more unique letters uh, that Paul writes. And several of the other letters, he's writing to, to places where he's already been, or maybe he started a new work or a new church, um, or he's writing to a person that he knows personally. When he's writing to these believers in Rome, he doesn't know them other than he knows that they exist, right? Like, he, hasn't, he doesn't know them firsthand. And in, during this period in the church, this is kind of the early church area, uh, there's a lot of confusion about salvation, especially if you haven't had uh, like somebody come in and pour into you, uh, like a pastor or an apostle. haven't had somebody who has a firsthand experience of Jesus. And so there's lots of questions about what do you do to be saved? What do you have to do? Uh, do you need to be circumcised? Because that was kind of like a big deal back then. Do you need to be a Jew or can a Gentile be saved as well? And since Paul, he has not met them, he wants to do what any good leader would do. Get to create clarity on the things that matter i don't think there's anything bigger than the salvation of your soul so in romans paul gives the case he tries to create clarity on the why we need jesus and then the how jesus saves us he wants to create as much clarity as he can on salvation i heard this this past week uh, and it's funny how god just uses those side conversations And the guy said it and i was like Damn, i'm just saying that on sunday uh, i've heard people say heard heard uh, john baker he's a pastor at canadian valley baptist church here in yukon He said uh, to be unclear is to be unkind to be unclear is to be unkind and i think that really applies to the book of romans because some people you might read through this book you might read through romans 8 every day this week and you might view uh, some of the directness, and possibly you might view it with a tone of just harshness. Uh, it's kind of kind of a harsh, or maybe you might feel like there's a little rudeness coming up in there. Uh, that's not how I want us to approach the word of the Lord. Paul, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, he is doing his best to make it crystal clear who is to be saved, how they are to be saved, and why they need to be saved. He isn't pulling his punches, uh, but to say it again, uh, to be unclear is to be unkind. He is wanting this group of people who he's never met, he wants them to get it right, to have a full and a robust understanding of the gospel so they can live the lives that God has called them to live and then also to keep them from falling prey to false gospels and doctrine. I think another element just kind of neath, kind of woven into that that might be lost here is that Paul has had quite the, the past. I don't know if you've ever had that moment where uh, you've rubbed shoulders with someone and maybe you've, you've heard about them but you've never actually rubbed shoulders with them and then you rub shoulders with them and you get that face-to-face interaction, like actually, this person is nothing like I expected. I thought they were this and they're like so kind and generous, like they're really a great person. Um, if you read through the book of Acts, you'll actually see that Paul uh, is standing in approval as Christians are stoned to death. Paul, but uh, really Saul, before his conversion, he was a huge persecutor of the church. And although Paul is writing Romans, that's about 15 to 20 years after his conversion, after the Lord met him on the Damascus Road, it's a big conversion there. I would bet that if you had a past like that that was that well known and that rough, uh, people would be hesitant to listen to you, to receive what you're saying, especially when it's people you've never met. And so Paul, he doesn't want to leave anything to chance in the book of Romans. He doesn't want to assume that they know anything about salvation. So now uh, that's, that's who he's talking to, and that's why he's talking to them. And I think that's super important because there's so much here in the book of Romans. So uh, like I said, we're going to tackle Romans 1 through 7 from about 30,000 feet, A lot of scripture jumping around. Again, I would strongly encourage you, you got the Bible out, follow along on the live event. Uh, But he starts by saying, hey, I've got some good news. That's Romans 1-5. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. Uh, The fact that Paul says Gentiles here is huge uh, because many followers of Jesus were confused if he was the savior for everyone or was he just the savior for the Jewish people and, and Paul is saying he is the savior for everyone so that's why he starts by saying this good news is for everyone right out the gate uh, Paul says nobody is left out he continues uh, in verse 16 he says for I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ it Is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes the Jew first and also the Gentile I want you to focus in on this this last part here This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. God makes us right in his sight from start to finish by faith. We do not have to earn it. It is all faith. If God makes us right, that means uh, that there was something wrong, right? It's really nice about, man, God makes us right. Well, if he made us right, that means something was wrong. You don't fix something that's not broken, right? Uh, so Paul lays out how God is righteous, and then at the same time, he has an anger towards sin. In Romans 1, 18 through 20, it says this, But God showed his anger from heaven against all the sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because God made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Again, that feels a little direct. There's no excuse for not knowing God. Uh, the Apostle Paul is trying to be clear because to be unkind is to be unclear is to be unkind. He says, through everything God made, everyone can clearly see God's invisible qualities, his power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. God has created the earth in such a way that uh, you are without excuse for saying there is no God. There's just things on this world just, when you look into the night sky, when you see just how big uh, the ocean is and how small you are, there's just things that God has put in this world where there's a sense of awe that this didn't just happen. Somebody made this happen. And then Paul continues, at the end of chapter 1, Paul lays out uh, this list uh, of people and it says they've just done these vile and these evil things, I don't know about you, but uh, a lot of us have this tendency. I know I do. uh, When I'm reading something, I tend to read myself into the hero role. Anybody? Right? Like, if I'm reading David and Goliath, I don't naturally associate myself to Goliath. I naturally associate myself to David. I got the slingshot. I'm taking that giant down, right? That's what we do. And so he reads this group of people who, at the end of chapter 1, and they've done these vile, evil things and Paul, he knows that we as humans, we have a tendency to think of ourselves better than we actually are. We, we think I would never be a part of that group. I think there's a lot of people who they give condemnation for that, that passage there, for that group. And then it says this right immediately after that. It says, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, all right? So he's punching at you, all right? You have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God, in his justice, will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Uh, A few thoughts from this passage. Uh, Don't condemn others, right? Uh, there's, a, there's a verse, you know, talks about the speck in your eye for the log in somebody else's, right? Uh, I got news for us. Uh, we are all sinners here. And don't think you can pour judgment on others and then get grace poured on you, right? It also says that the, the measure you give to others is the measure that you will receive. You can't pour judgment on others and then expect grace on you. That's not how it works. And then he kind of shifts, he says, hey, there's these evil people, and you're kind of sitting there reading it going, yeah, there are evil people, I'm so sick of these evil people. And he's like, you're one of them. And you're like, oh, okay, I didn't really like that. And then he kind of shifts gears here in verse four of chapter two. It says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, uh, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteousness, righteous judgment will be revealed. God's kindness, his tolerance, his patience, it says, he gives us those things to turn us from our sin. Not to affirm our sin, but to turn us from And then it goes on to say, there will be a day when God will judge all sin. He is going to judge all sin. And here's how he kind of lays it out just a few verses later. "He He will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps doing what is evil for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Equal opportunity, it's for both people, right? There will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, right? There's trouble and calamity for everybody. If you do what is evil, it doesn't matter your race, right? And there will be glory and honor and peace for all who do good, it doesn't matter. And then it finishes up, chapter two, verse 11 says, for God shows no favoritism. He doesn't care if you're a Jew, a Gentile, he doesn't care if you're black, you're white, you're rich, you're poor. Uh, There will be trouble for those who do evil and then there will be glory, honor, and peace from God for all who do good. And then Paul, he kind of riffs on this a a little bit Um, and I I don't think we get the full context here but just like if I could put his word, I could paraphrase, uh, Paul is kind of like, you think you're the stuff because you're a Jew. Like that's, I'm paraphrasing here, but that's kind of what it is. He goes, you think you know the law inside and out and that makes you good. But the law isn't any good if it's all head knowledge. They think that they can follow the letter of the law and they can take their, their standing with God because of the race that they are and say, uh, I've got it together, I'm the stuff. And he's just saying, it's not about that. He, he says this in, in verse 29 in chapter two. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not obeying the letter of the law, rather it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks to praise God, not people. They seek praise from God, not from people. God isn't looking for someone who knows how to play the the game of church. Uh, God doesn't care what others think. It's about your heart. Is your heart right with God? Because a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, they don't seek praise from people. If you're a people pleaser, you might wanna write that verse down, right? Anybody else, that's me, right? Uh, He's communicating that things have changed, that it is no longer about the law. That was the way that they kept right with God, with animal sacrifices and not eating things and staying clean, it's changed. It's all about the heart and our hearts have been changed by God. And then he kind of the, the question that he kind of follows here is, so if it's all about the heart, why would we try to obey the law? Why, why do the right thing, right? If it's all about the heart, uh, it's because your heart determines your actions. If you seek the praise of God instead of people, it's a good thing, God's going to be honored in that. Hey, it won't be perfect, you're gonna mess up, uh, what happens then? Right? Like, like we, it's all about the heart. We're going to try to do the right thing because if he has our heart, we're going to walk towards him. But none of us are perfect. And in Romans 3, it says this, true, some of them were unfaithful. But just because they were unfaithful, does that mean that God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone is a liar, God is true. A huge part to unpack here is the character of God is his faithfulness. Even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, God is true. God is faithful. And I think that's a huge encouragement, uh, especially for what's coming to us in the next section, that that even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. Uh, We continue on in, in verse 10. It says, as the scripture says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away All have become useless no one does good not a single one that was a lot of absolutes right no one no one no one everybody all have become useless I'm so thankful that God is faithful even when we are unfaithful and then uh, towards the end of chapter 3 Paul kind of pivots here and it really starts to place an emphasis uh, on Jesus. Because he kind of lays the, the, the ground. He's made it clear that, hey, everyone in this room, on the stage and in the seats, and even those cute little kids over there, they're already sinners too. We are all sinners, right? That's what he's been talking about. Hey, we're all messed up. We're all in this together. None of us are perfect. And now he's like, hey, I want us to know we're all on the same playing field. He's like, let's shift our focus to Jesus, And to get to the end of chapter three here, he's like, for everyone has sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glorious standard. And yet, God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. And people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. He makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus Christ took the penalty, the punishment that we deserved for our sin. We cannot find salvation outside of Jesus. Any answer that's outside of Jesus, it's going to fail us. Uh, You can't look at a good person. You can't look at being a good enough person because we will never be good enough. Everyone has sinned, right? Right? That's some inclusive language. That's not what we want to be included with, right? But everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's standard. And I think most people, if, if they're honest, they'd be just completely honest, they don't have an issue with admitting they're not perfect. Like, who's, who's got it together in here? Who's perfect? We've all sinned, right? We, we get that. We, if we're honest, we don't have any issue admitting uh, that we aren't perfect. We've all got issues, every one of us. And that's what makes following Jesus so attractive. It, it, we don't have to hold ourselves up and say, look at me, look at how I've got it all together, look at what I've done. No, it's the exact opposite. Jesus is the one we look up to. What Jesus did on the cross gives us salvation. What Jesus did on the cross gives us freedom. The focus is no longer on us. It's all eyes on Jesus. And then he finishes uh, in three Romans 3 with this. In 27 says, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based by faith. So we are made right with God through faith, not by obeying the law. It's important to remember when it comes to our salvation, we didn't bring anything to the table other than the sin that makes it necessary. Right? We have nothing to offer. We have nothing to boast of because it's all faith that makes us right with God. And this is one of those statements that really gets in the way for a lot of people. If it's all faith, then again, your actions don't matter, right? We we just talked about that. Like, uh, Paul isn't saying that you get a get out of jail free card once you've accepted Jesus. In chapter six, he actually responds to this by saying, Should you continue to sin so that God's grace would abound even more? And he answers that question with an emphatic no. True faith, true belief requires that your life is changed. Your life has changed. And, and as we continue in Romans, Paul, he uses uh, Abraham as example, and he's someone who, who these believers in Rome would know. They're going to know who Abraham is. He's not talking about Abraham's obedience to the law. He's going to talk about his faith. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger And in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. It wasn't Abraham's deeds that made him righteous. It was his faith. And his faith affected how he lived. Do your actions reflect what you believe? I got news for you, they do. If you truly believe something, it's gonna change the way that you act. Are we saved by our actions? No. If God has given you new life through his son Jesus and you believe that Jesus took the penalty for your sin on the cross, that changes the way you live. Anything other than new life in Jesus, it's behavior modification, it is not salvation. Uh, You can do the right things and work at being a better person, but without Jesus, it's simply behavior modification. There is no new life. Circle back to chapter three, we have nothing to boast about. It is all God's grace that we have been saved. It's through faith in Jesus that we're saved. It's all faith. In chapter 5, Paul talks about what faith brings, right? It's it's all about faith. It's all about Jesus. If your faith is in Jesus, what does that mean for you? And here's what it says in 5. It says, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for they know that they will help us develop endurance. And endurance helps us develop strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Faith brings joy. It says you can rejoice when you have problems because uh, that's gonna give you endurance. And endurance is gonna give you character. And character is gonna strengthen the hope of your salvation. And that hope will not disappoint. Amen. Why? Why will hope in Jesus never disappoint? It says it right there. Because we know how much God loves us. We know God loves us because of the cross. Your actions show your beliefs. God's actions showed his love for you at the cross. Or his son Jesus hung on a cross for the sins of the world. And we didn't bring anything to that, that was all Him. Romans 5, 6 says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came and sacrificed Himself for us. Church, I wanna hammer this home. Uh, We don't bring anything to the table when it comes to our salvation. It's All about what Jesus has already done for us it's all about what he's done for us we got nothing to boast about Paul he goes on here a little bit and he says you know most of us uh, we would not die for a good person now there might be some of you who would die for a really upstanding a good person but no one's gonna say hey I'll take the place of that convicted murderer you can kill me so that he can have new life And if you got in that situation, you'd come up with all kinds of rationalizations, right? Like, I didn't mess it up. That's their problem. It's not on me. That's what they did. They made their bed. They're going to sleep in it. And yet, how does God treat us? Uh, Romans 5, 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God loves you. And when we accept Jesus in faith, the Bible is clear that he gives us a new life, that the old life is dead and the new life is come. The power of sin is gone in your life. It says this in Romans 6, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we now, we know we will also live with him. It's saying when we accept Jesus, we are free from the power of sin. That is a gospel truth. In Jesus, we are free from the power of sin. Just to get real for just a second, uh, who's batting a 1,000 against sin? And even after you know Jesus, right? Nobody. None of us have it perfect even after we've accepted Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, he gets you, right? And he's gonna be real, he's gonna be vulnerable and share this about himself to people he's never met, and he's also gonna encourage us with it. Uh, it's Romans seven twenty-one. I have discovered this principle in life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Have you been there? Or I know this is the right thing for me to do. I want to do the right thing, but instead I do the stupid thing. Instead I do the wrong thing. And Paul, he continues, says, I love the Lord with all my heart, but there is another power at war within me, at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that's still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? I want to do the right thing, but I keep going to the wrong thing. I love God, but there's another power in me. I can't, it's, it's holding on to me. Who will free me from this life dominated by sin and death? Next verse, thank God. The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to it. When you get to those moments where you do the things you know you shouldn't do, you do the wrong thing, so many of us, I'm so guilty of this. This is confession time, too. I'm so guilty of, uh, uh, at default, when I mess up, I need to try harder. I need to dig in, get some grit, game plan. How am I going to get around this? So that that doesn't happen again. I don't want to do the wrong again. So I got these plans and all these things. And there's nothing wrong with any of those. Sometimes we need a little grit. Sometimes we need a game plan. Sometimes you do need to dig in. But all of those fall on your shoulders. You have to try harder. You have to dig in. You have to have some grit. You have to have a game plan. Over and over again in Romans, it talks about how it's all faith that pleases God. Salvation is a response to what God has done for us, not what we've done for God. So what if your first response to failure, can I just be real here, some biblical language, what if our first response to sinning was to run to Jesus, to confess and to ask him to lead us to the right path? Just confess and say, God, forgive me. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm I'm trusting on you. I mean, it says it right there in that passage. What a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ our Lord. When we mess up, don't put it on your shoulders. The, The guilt and the shame to the pressure to perform better, that's what we do. No, 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 no. The solution to our mess is to cast that at the feet of Jesus, to take the burden away from us and to give it to Him, because even when we are unfaithful, He is faithful, and that's what salvation looks like. It's not a focus on us. Jesus has done it all. He saves us. He redeems us. He gives us freedom. He gives us new life. It's all Him. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, your life should be marked by living in faith. It should not be marked by guilt or shame. Jesus took all that away the moment you placed your faith in him. Some of you are sitting here, you're feeling some tension. Like you're, you feel like your life is marked by guilt. Your life is marked by shame. You've put your faith in Jesus, but uh, y- you're, you're marked by these things. You feel like your identity is in your performance. I'm telling you, that's the enemy trying to discourage you. Your identity is not in how you perform. Your identity is in Jesus. It doesn't change. Um, I had a thought, and I think this was the Holy Spirit just dropping this in there. Um, I I go pick up the trailer. All this stuff goes in a trailer every week, and uh, (laughs) Um, I was wearing one of the wheels on our trailer out. It was going bald because I had the, the uh, trailer brake turned up really high. Because I could, well I'd come up to a brake, I'd hit the stop sign, I could just feel my truck like getting pushed by this trailer, is super heavy. And I wanted it to ride like it did when I don't have a trailer hooked up to it. So I cranked that trailer brake up and then I hit the brake and it breaks the trailers without it so I don't feel that pressure like it's pushing me up. I wanted to ride like it wasn't there, but it was. And it caused a lot of friction. There's like this bald spot on these wheels on this trailer. I got it fixed, right? Um, Because I'm carrying it in a way that I shouldn't. And I try to cover it up by overcompensating with this this function of the truck. But it's causing friction. It's causing stress. It's not designed to be that way. And I think about how often we do that same thing with our Christian's life. We're, we're followers of Jesus, but we're carrying that shame and that guilt, and we're masking it. We're covering it with work harder, game plan, dig deep. We're putting it all on us, and it's putting all this weight and this friction and this stress on us. Because we want to make it seem like it, I, this is how it is if I didn't have that. What if? We went to Jesus, we unhooked that trailer, and took all that weight, all that pressure off us, and we could just be free to be the people that God calls us to be. No pressure, no stress, none of that, that friction. We're not gonna be perfect, but it doesn't fall on us. It's not on our shoulders. Our identity is in Jesus. And I'm just gonna be real with you. I believe that there are people here today who you need to put your faith in Jesus. you haven't crossed uh, that starting line to your faith or the finish line to your faith. And I believe that there's people right now who as they, they heard this, as we talked about salvation, they say, I need that in my life. Uh, if you want to follow Jesus, you wanna put your faith in him, would you pray this prayer out loud with me right now? Everybody in this room, pray this out loud. Let's close our eyes, be loud voices, uh, nobody prays along, or repeat after me, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. I confess, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I believe you were raised from the dead. I confess, Jesus is Lord, take my life, my past, my present my future. I am completely yours. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and celebrate how God has moved.